The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. The Bible study tonight really comes from last week. If you remember, the father of this boy who was tormented by a demon had come to Jesus. And there's this interaction that I really think is at the crux of the story. And that is the man's faith. The man's limited faith. And in Mark chapter 9, verse 24, it says, Immediately the father of the child, that is the boy who, had this, uh, the, this, who was demonized, cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I don't know about you, but I relate to this story. I relate to this individual. You know, I have faith, Lord. I have faith, but help me in the areas where I doubt or where my faith isn't, hasn't arrived yet. And, and, and so I was thinking about this, like, what does our faith in Jesus look like tonight? And certainly, you know, for a physical need or at a time of a great loss, like some of us are experiencing the last couple of weeks, we need our faith straightened, strengthened, and, and we have a God who will meet us where we are, and he will, he will certainly answer our prayers. But, but maybe above and beyond the answering of a particular prayer is the development and the strengthening of our faith. And so tonight I want to talk about the gospel. Tonight I want to talk on the screen. You'll see the title of tonight's Bible study is man's impossible problem God's perfect solution. I want you, when you leave here tonight, to have a better understanding, at least from a different perspective, of what the gospel is and, and what Jesus wants you to believe here tonight. With our imperfect faith, with you and I coming to Jesus and saying, I believe in you, Jesus. I trust in you, Jesus. Help my unbelief. I'm going to be reading, this is what is known as a topical sermon, a topical Bible study. I'm going to be reading from Philemon chapter, I mean, there's only one chapter, verses 18 and 19. And then I'm going to read from Romans chapter 5, verse 12, then Isaiah 53, verse 6, and lastly, from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Let's go ahead and begin. Those who tell his story begin by saying that he was a slave. Now, slavery to us is alien. It's, it's, it's very distant, but it was a part of his life. In first century Rome, slaves were little more than possessions. Now, let me be clear. In some households, a slave was included into the family, but they were a slave nonetheless. In some situations, an individual will serve their time as a slave, be prepared to be released, but because of their love and affection for their master, would be retained. This was what would be known as a bondservant. By their own choice, they wanted to be a part of the family, a part of the life of their master. We must resist a worldview that assigns worth to people when we're trying to see life through this man's eyes. The one thing he longed for that would never be his was freedom. He wanted to be free. He wanted to, he wanted to be his own man. He would have told you that his master is good, at times even kind, but he was still owned by another person. So then after much thought, he put a plan into action that would secure him 
at least what he thought would be his freedom. So then he escaped, he disappeared into the shadows, and like many slaves before him, he was on the run. At first, uncertain freedom had a bit of excitement to it, but it also came with the fear of being caught. He never slept soundly. He never entered into a town revealing his identity, for he knew that there were those who were hired to find runaway slaves and to bring them back. What might happen to a runaway slave is that they might be executed if caught. That is, right there on the spot, they could be crucified, a deterrent to others. Some might say, well, Danny, why such a severe sentence? It's important for us to know tonight that 50%, half of the Roman Empire was made up of slaves. And one of the empire's greatest fears would, would be a slave revolt. At the very least, if they were to catch him and not crucify him, not execute him, they would hold him down in the center of the city, and they would take a brand with the letter F, and they would brand him in his forehead, marking him a fugitive for the balance of his life. You see, his life would be dominated by fear. Just think about it for a moment. Fear ruled every decision that he ever made. Think, too, that with this fragile freedom came a special loneliness. I'm going to talk about that a little bit into the Bible study. He was alone. He was afraid to reveal himself to anyone. He was on the run. One day he landed in, of all places, Rome, which was the center of the world. He lived among those who, for good reason, attempted to be invisible. He made the best of, the, of things the way he could, living on the run, eating, existing, but truly not living. While in Rome, he heard through the network of communication that there was a man who spoke of being truly free. The man who preached this good news ironically had chains on his wrists. His name was Paul. This would be Paul's first imprisonment. He would be under house arrest. He would be allowed to receive visitors. He would be allowed to proclaim the gospel to those who came to see him. But he, too, was chained to a a Roman guard. Over time, the slave believed in Christ and was told by the Apostle Paul to return home. As our friend departed, Paul handed him a letter, more likely a scroll, which was to be presented upon his return home to his master. Think about that. He would carry a scroll with him and give it to his master once home. We call this short letter the book of Philemon named for the person to whom it was addressed. The name of the slave, why his name was Onesimus. It means useful. Even his identity was was associated with his being a slave. Home for him was Colossae, a city in Asia Minor. So then after a very long journey across the Adriatic and the Aegean seas, Onesimus approached 
his former home. He came up to the city limits of Colossae. He made his way down the main road, and then to the right, he took a short turn. He entered into, into the yard and moved towards the direction of the front door. He reaches up with his hand, and he begins to knock, and then he stands back, again clutching the scroll that he brought from the Apostle Paul. The door opens, and another household slave is at the door. He sees Onesimus, and he disappears. And finally, we're told that Philemon fills the door. All that Onesimus can do is to hand Philemon the scroll, take a step back, and look at the ground, and wait to see what the man will do. His master snaps the wax seal, unrolls the scroll, and begins to read it. The greeting shocked him. Paul, a prisoner for Jesus Christ. Onesimus waits for his response. The other slaves in the household, too, hover by and wait to see what Philemon will do. The neighborhood, the other people who own slaves, too, listen, are waiting and watching to see what Philemon will do. And although we're not told the outcome, the following verses, these two verses from Philemon, uh, verses 18 and 19, strongly suggest that forgiveness was granted Onesimus. On the screen, you should see the verse. I will read it to you. Verse 18 of Philemon, if he, that's Onesimus, the slave, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me your own self. Paul's request, hear me with all clarity. Paul's request is that Onesimus's debt that was certainly owed to, be, to Philemon would be charged to him. Now, Paul is hundreds of miles away in Rome, again, a prisoner. But the scroll and the words on the scroll are telling his friend Philemon that if this man owes you anything, if he has wronged you in any way, I want you to charge that to me. In Philemon's mind, the transferring of Onesimus's sin, his debt to an innocent man, seemed impossible. But forgiveness would be based on Paul's promise when he writes, I will pay it. The terminology suggests a guaranteed payment. Even though Paul was far away, his reputation was behind the promise. His identity was behind the promise. And so he makes what we would today call a legal promissory note. This is a real-life illustration of the gospel. This is what I am asking you to believe tonight. Whether you're joining us online or present here in the sanctuary, or whether you'll view this Bible study at another time, I want you to believe with all of your heart that the debt that you and I owe God, Jesus paid for 
on the cross. God placed our sin on his son. Theologians use the word imputation. That is, our sin was charged to Jesus, and he paid it in full. Paul does not suggest that Philemon ignore Onesimus' sin, but that he allow him, Paul, to repay it. And this, this is the principle that when we are wronged by someone, this is the principle that Jesus died for that offense or that your or me being wronged. Jesus paid for it. He deals with it. During our time together, we're going to look at sin through the lens of God's grace. Only through the cross are we truly free from sin's power. From sin's power. That tendency in our life, that inclination in our life to, at times, sin. The gospel gives us power over sin. We are no longer its slave. We are no longer under its power. The gospel of Jesus Christ severs and breaks its power. He, it also breaks its penalty. We will not be judged for sin because Jesus was judged for our sin. And lastly, the gospel breaks the chains of sin's guilt, shame, and fear. Martin Luther said, you'll see this quote on the screen, as Christ does for us with God the Father, so Paul with Philemon for Onesimus. We are all God's Onesimai, Martin Luther. So here's what we're going to look at tonight. We're going to look at three points, really three verses. Point number one is that we inherited Adam's sin. Point number one is Adam's sin from Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Point number two is Jesus took our sin, or Jesus' sacrifice, Isaiah 53, 6. And then lastly, or point number three, God sees us as righteous in Jesus, or Jesus' righteousness from 2 Corinthians 5, 21. If you believe in Jesus Christ, if you have trusted him for your sins, God sees you as holy and righteous. Christ's righteousness or right standing has been imputed to us. Well, let's go ahead and look at the first point. On the screen, Adam's sin, Romans 5, verse 12, where the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Rome, therefore, or because this is true, just as sin came into the world through one man, he's speaking of Adam here, and really this section of Romans is a contrast between Adam and Jesus between what happened in the garden so many years ago, and yet you and I live with the consequences of that action, between Adam, who plunged mankind into a fallen state, and Jesus, who rescues us. So then sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. So death spread to all men, because all sin, and the idea is there is that Adam was our representative. We'll talk about that in a second here. Another quote for you. Plenty of quotes tonight. And the quote is this. We aren't sinners because we sin. Instead, we sin because we're sinners. That there is, that there is within us, in our nature, a propensity to sin. 
It's not that there's some point in time in our lives that we did something that caused us to be sinners. No, because because of Adam's sin, again, Romans chapter 5, verse 12, we have this propensity, we have this inclination to sin. Adam's sin directly impacted the entire, the entire human race. In his disobedience, he represented mankind. Some will say, well, Danny, I don't think that's fair. I don't think it's fair that one man should represent all. Well, you know, on the other end of the argument that, that, that Adam's sin, he was a federal uh, head, kind, so to speak, and that he represented us, are a couple of things to think about. That he, had he not sinned, it is likely that one of his children or one of those who came from him would sin. And sometimes I think about it like this. I sin daily. I have this, this, apart from my inclination to sin, that I have this tendency to trust in myself rather than to trust in the Lord. You can take it one step further and say, what Jesus did, Jesus did for us on the cross, and that's what Paul's going to say again in a minute. I'll get to it in a moment is that through him, we have the forgiveness of sin. So through one man, mankind fell, and yet through man, the second Adam, the last Adam, we have the opportunity for salvation. Paul goes on to say that sin followed by death entered the world again through the one man. You know, sometimes I'm driving. I'm not a big beach guy. Not not in the least. I mean... Driving down the five, looking over to the right if you're heading south, looking over to the left if you're heading north. I mean, it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. We'll be down at the beach tomorrow, right? Danny Ramos will get there at the very last minute. Don't tell anybody I'm telling you this. I will stay here at work probably till about 5.15, almost 5.30. I won't eat any of those burgers or hot dogs. Well, maybe if they have one left over, but... And I'll slip into my, you know, to my beach gear. I'll head down there. I'll join six billion. No, I shouldn't say this. It might discourage you from going. But anyways, to find a parking spot, make my way over, you know, hobnob with some people, do a couple of worship songs, and then jump in the Pacific Ocean to baptize folks, which is a wonderful thing. I'm trying to say is that creation looks beautiful. But when Adam sinned, creation experienced a curse. We instinctively know that something is wrong because death is viewed as an enemy. Creation came under a curse at the fall. Think that what God called very good on the last day of creation, currently it groans in anticipation of the fulfillment of our redemption. In Romans chapter 8, verse 22, Paul writes, For we know that the whole or the entire creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, until the redemption, till the redemption of mankind and the redemption of creation. I want you to think too that though the death here describes more than man dying. Death describes what Adam lost in the garden when he sinned, and that is his relationship with God. Can you imagine what it was like? Prior to the fall, Adam and Eve stewarding the garden and creation, the animals, kind of overseeing, supervising. 
And then we're told that in the cool of the day that the, that, that the, that the limbs and the boughs of the trees would begin to move as a wind began to come into the garden signaling that God was near. And then in the midst of their labor, they look at each other and they stop. And they move away from what they were doing and they move in the direction of God. And they begin to, the terminology suggests, that they begin to interact with God as they walk with God in the cool of the day. Think of intimacy, closeness. Think, too, that there was nothing between them and God, that they experienced what Onesimus was seeking, what some of us in this room are looking for, liberty, freedom, a clear conscience, an opportunity to start again to start anew. And so they would walk with God in the cool of the day. In Romans chapter 5, verse 15, again, the contrast with Adam and Christ. Paul says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. That would be Adam's fall. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more has, have the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And so that you and I might look around and see evil around us, but you also have to acknowledge that there's good. In the same way that we would say there's something horribly wrong, it, when we look at aspects of life, oh, my friends, hear me. When we look at other parts of life, we can say there's something really, really good. That yes, there's death, but yes, there's life. And Paul says that through Jesus came life to those who were dead. I want you to think about this. So spiritually, spiritual position is how God sees us or views us, at least one way that he does. So I want you to think about this. Spiritually, there are two families in the world. Those who are in Adam or those who, because of unbelief, remain in their sin and those who are in Christ, people who are forgiven of their sin. The reason I bring this up is because spiritual position, although it may be alien to us, determines our e eternity. Let me read to you from Ephesians chapter 2, a couple of verses. And Paul speaking to the Ephesians, something that was related to their past, he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, again, past tense. The term walk is how you lived, how you ordered your life following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. See things that are spiritual dynamics here. And the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and, and sins, made us alive with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. What Paul is telling us is that there was a time in each of our lives when we were dead in our sin. We were in Adam spiritually. That was our position. We were by nature under God's judgment. That's what he refers to as wrath. But then he says, God in his grace and his mercy initiated our salvation. He rescued us from our sin. 
Now we go to point two. Jesus took our sin. And to, to, to see Jesus' sacrifice, we're going to look into the Old Testament. This is a, this is a prophetic uh, chapter, Isaiah 53, of God's suffering servant. I want to lift out one verse. We looked at Adam's sin and its consequences. Now we're going to look at one verse where Isaiah looks into the future and sees the suffering servant. And he's, this, this verse, is, is, you're familiar with it. It's common. Where he says, all we, we, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone. The scope, the scope of this is everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, the suffering servant, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. That on the cross, God took our sin and placed it upon his son, Jesus. My friends, this is the essence of the gospel. The prophet says that although Jesus is sinless, he chose to embrace our sin and its judgment on the cross. I want to refer back to Paul's offer to take Onesimus' debt to himself. On the cross, Jesus took your sin and my sin, and he took it upon himself. Do you remember John the Baptist's declaration in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 29? Behold the Lamb of God, listen to these words, who takes away the sin of the world. Hey, I, I, I think of when Jesus was on the cross, and, and earlier in that day, that those who were crucified on either side of him were, were, were yelling at him. They were you know, possibly using profanity against him. And as the day began to go on, there's this conversation between these two men. And one of them has this moment where he says, you know, we're getting what we deserve, but, but he has done nothing wrong. And then, my friends, faith speaks. Like the father in the valley, I believe, help my unbelief. The faith speaks as, 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 as one of the men looks to Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The man had not been to church, nor had he prayed as far as we know. He was a criminal. The, the, the man had not, had, had not fulfilled many of the obligations that many churches put on people. He simply looked to Jesus and he said, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And, and Isaiah would say that for you and for I, although we are like sheep and although we have gone our own way, we are to look to Jesus. We are to trust in the one who died for our sins. Isaiah 53 describes God's suffering servant. You and I would say this is the Messiah. The prophet sees men as sheep continually turning away from God. Remember, this is our inclination. This is our nature. Prophecy draws on terminology from Israel's sacrificial system. A lamb, spotless, without blemish, would be selected and would die for the sins of a nation from year to year, making atonement. Listen to Peter's words on the matter from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Of Jesus, he says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And so, as we're talking about this this evening, I want you to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin. 
I want you to look at him as the, as the thief on the cross looked at him, as the father in the valley with his son in this severe condition. We look to Jesus for the forgiveness of our sin because our sin was placed upon him. One more thing, and then we'll move on. You know, I was kind of going through Onesimus' story. I said that he was lonely. I, I said that, that even though he had this quasi, this conditional freedom, that wherever he went, the fear of being caught, the fear of being uh, uh, executed, or the fear of being dragged back to, to his master's house was upon him and suffering for it. Wherever he went, he had this fear. And associated with this fear was a loneliness. He could never, ever let anybody know who he truly was. And my friends, as we sit here tonight, there are aspects of our life that we, we, we hold close to the vest, so to speak. That we're not going to let people know us intimately because we believe that if they knew us intimately, they would reject us. There are aspects to loneliness that come because we're afraid of being rejected. We live in the shadow of if they really knew me, they wouldn't want to know me. And so because we build walls, because we keep an arm's distance, even though we have many friends, we lack intimacy. And God would sit here tonight and he would tell you that through the cross of Christ, your loneliness will be gone because you will know him. He sees us. He sees us as unlike anybody else sees us. And he reaches out to embrace us. It's interesting that when Adam and Eve, that day they reached up and they partook of the fruit, that as they consumed it there, the, the man, Adam, and his wife, Eve, it says that their eyes were open and they saw that they were naked. They quickly run to take leaves and to cover their nakedness. And they hear in the distance the wind going through the branches and, and they know what it means. And, and, and the day before they would have run to him, but on this day they run from him. There's a powerful emotion stirring up within them that they don't know, that, they, that they've never experienced before. And to cover their nakedness, the leaves are inadequate. They just can't do it. So we're told in, in the narrative that they run behind the trees. And God calls out to him, Adam, where are you? Adam, what have you done? Not because God doesn't know, but because he provides an opportunity for Adam to say, Lord, I have sinned against you. Forgive me. But let me tell you why we have loneliness. If you look at the account, the first thing that Adam does when God says, have you eaten of the fruit that I've commanded you not to? Immediately, he points to his wife and he says, why, it is the woman that you gave me. Hear those words, the woman that you gave me. She gave me the fruit and I ate it. And if the women in this room are feeling pretty good right now, saying, look what Adam did, he turns to the woman and he says, woman, and she says, well, you know, it was the snake that you put in the garden. He caused this to happen. But listen, all this is, all this is, is a consequence of sin. It fractures relationships. Even though there's a man and a woman 
who are married and love and care for each other, there are secrets. There is, I'm not going to let you in any far further. And the reason I bring this up is because the cross, my friends, allows us to have not many but some intimate relationships. It's interesting to me, here before we move on to our next point, that on the cross Jesus experienced separation from this Father so that we can experience his presence again. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, in about the ninth hour, this would have been about 3 p.m. on that day, the chronology or the timeline is that at 9 a.m. they crucified him. They, they put him upon the cross. So he hung there from 9 to 12. And it was going along like any other crucifixion, at least from the Roman, the Roman soldier's perspective. But then something happened about noon. All of a sudden, in the middle of the day, when the sun should have been the brightest, Jerusalem's at about 2,500 feet, likely no cloud cover, all of a sudden it became dark, an indication of judgment. If you remember, one of the plagues in Egypt was that for three days there was darkness. We're not talking about an overcast day. We're talking about midnight. We're talking about torches needed to see what they were doing. And from, from 12 noon to 3 p.m. on the cross, it was dark. And this is when your sin and my sin was being judged by God. This is when God pulled away from the Son. If you can imagine Jesus knowing the Father intimately for all of eternity past, in the moment, this is his cup of suffering from the Garden of Gethsemane. This is what he and his humanity say, Father, take this cup away. No, Danny, he was talking about the physical suffering. I believe that he was talking about the physical suffering, but even more. He anticipated that when he took your sin and my sin upon himself, that God would pull away. And that in his humanity, you remember Psalm 22, he cries out into the darkness, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And my friends, he did this so that you and I would never experience separation from God because we trust in Jesus. Not because we're good enough, but because we trust in Jesus. Remember the Father's words, I believe, help my unbelief. So in his humanity, Jesus was abandoned by God. I don't understand this so that you and I will know an ending intimacy with God. I listen to podcasts, and one of the podcasts I listen to say that right now, I, I can't substantiate it, I don't have the statistics, but they believe that loneliness is an epidemic in our time. They believe that there's an ache, and even good people, even good Christian people, there's an ache for intimacy, for closeness, to, to, to be able to, to, to lay aside the you know, metaphor, the masks, and to be, to be who we really are, to be seen and to see. The gospel tells us that God is with us, that he will never leave us or forsake us. On the screen, you'll see the following quote. The church consists of those who are very different on every level of life but experience deep relationship 
because of our relationship with Christ. Before we move on to our next point, I want you to think about this. That you and I have a potential, even though we're different, even though, even though you may be young and, and, and I may be older, even though you, 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 we, would, we would look around us in the world and say, well, these people, you know, this political group will have nothing to do with this political group or this ethnicity with this ethnicity or, or this gender with this gender, or this economic, you know, group will have nothing to do. But in the church, regardless of all these things that are distinctions out there, we have the potential to know each other yeah, I was with some pastors today, and we were talking about unity. And, and I was saying, unity to me is not the church of Jerusalem. And I could easily be, be misunderstood with what I'm about to say. I go, because in Jerusalem, they were Jewish believers. I go, but if you go to Antioch, why in Antioch there was Jew and Gentile? who outside of the church would have nothing to do with each other, yet inside of the church they were witnessed as having meals together and serving each other. Outside of Antioch, the Antioch church, there were slaves and masters, and yet within the church there was a potential that if somebody from the outside was looking in, they would see a slave teaching his master, the rich and the poor. That, my friends, is unity. Unity isn't when we all are the same. The, the beauty of spiritual unity is that when we're all different, but because of Jesus, because of Jesus, we love and serve one another. The next point and last point, Jesus is righteousness. God sees us as righteous in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Christ we might be the righteousness of God. In Paul's letter to Philemon, in verse 15, it says, Paul writing to Philemon, the letter that Onesimus delivered to his master, verse 15 says, for this perhaps is why he was, he was parted from you for a while, for a season, that you may have him back forever, receive him back. Verse 16, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Notice with me the dramatic change that salvation brings in Onesimus and Philemon's relationship. Paul calls him a beloved brother. Not only are we set free from sin, but we are reconciled to God and to others. Our Christianity means that we have the potential of not only being reconciled to God, but also with those who have wronged us or those whom we have wronged. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin, Jesus, for 33 years, Jesus lived a sinless life. For 33 years perfectly sinless life. For he who knew no sin became sin. On the cross, as we've already said, while Jesus was on the cross, God took the sin of the world and placed it on his son and he judged it. He judged all sin on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin. Jesus didn't sin, but he took our sin. 33 years of sinless life. 
he became sin, that we might become the righteousness of Christ in him. Listen to this, that when you place your faith in Jesus, as imperfect as it is, God now sees you as though you were living that 33 years of a sinless life. He chooses to see you holy and righteous and blameless. And my friends, that's what sets us free. That is the gospel. And the Father said, I believe, help my unbelief. And I believe that the Christian life flows from understanding the gospel. And I believe that for Danny Ramos, and I'm done, but for Danny Ramos, I need to daily revisit the cross, not to be saved again, but to remember. Because although the boy in the valley dealt with a very real demon, you and I continually have whispers and ideas and thoughts that come into our minds and come into our souls that says there's something wrong with you. Oh, they all worship. Oh, they all study the scriptures. But there's something wrong with you. And God says from heaven, saying, no. My son and my daughter have been purchased by the blood of my son, and they are holy and righteous. And I accept them in the beloved. On the screen, there's a quote from Timothy Keller, his book, Galatians for You. He says, when God credits righteousness, he is conferring a legal status on someone. He treats them as, as, as actually righteous and free from condemnation, even though they are still actually unrighteous in their heart and behavior. They are justified. They are declared righteous. Terminology, terminology that may be alien to you, but it's more important for you to see how God sees you than how you see yourself. Let me close with this. Those who tell his story begin by saying that he was a slave. Those who tell his stories always end by saying that he was forgiven and that although he was a slave, no one was ever as free as he was in Christ Jesus. Those who tell his story often remind their hearers that his story is our story. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.